0: This is the final installment of our series about the Michael Turpin homicide in Lexington, Kentucky. In this episode, we take a close look at the aftermath of that tragic night in February of 1986. In the nearly 36 years since Michael Turpin's murder, three people have been incarcerated and families continue to mourn. There have been dramatic parole hearings, eye-opening letters of intent extensive and continuous press coverage, an inmate conspiracy plot, and a lot of public opinion about prison reform in regards to this case. All that and more coming right up. Oh, and stay tuned at the end of this episode for a breakdown of what's to come in our season three. You're not going to want to miss that. Hi, we're the Lexington Podcast.
1: We are all things Lexington, Kentucky.
0: History, true crime, current events, and local recommendations.
1: Glad you're here, y'all.
0: Okay, so here is our where are they now type episode. So the entire aftermath of sentencing of the trial of everything.
1: They were released on a technicality.
0: No, (laughs) no, thank goodness. They were not released on a technicality. In fact, they had several paroles. So of course, as we know, they were served with 25 to life. And I'll just tell you how each one of them handled that. Right? So Keith is currently still held in the psychiatric unit of the Kentucky State Reformatory in LaGrange, Kentucky. I tried to do some digging as to why it's a psychiatric unit and came up empty. But this is according... So I do want to preface this by saying that from here on out, most of the information that I'm getting is from LEX-18. LEX-18 has really stayed on this particular case since 1986. And so they often do these like, hey... It's been 10 years and this person's up for parole or whatever type stuff. But in one of his final parole hearings, they asked him why he did it. And he said he didn't know and that it was, quote, water over a dam.
1: Water over a dam.
0: Correct. So then I looked that up as like an idiom. It's obviously a saying. And according to the Googles, (laughs) (laughs) it basically means like something that's over and done with, especially in an unfortunate occurrence beyond recall or reconsideration. Basically, like water under the bridge. Yes, yeah, so to say? Why are yeah. there two <laughs>
1: so similar idioms? It's weird.
0: I think it's just a dialect type thing. So like some people say water over a dam. A squirrel
1: in the hand is worth two in the bush. <laughs> like we don't need both. Strange, but that's I would love to know why he um is placed there currently. Yeah. Did and you have did you have any history of mental illness? Well, Besides killing someone.
0: Well, yeah. But all of everything that he did.
1: I mean, everything that he... They never talked about him well. Every time you have a descriptor sentence of Keith, it's always like he's a fool. Easily played. It all leads back to Elizabeth. Yeah. Yeah. Every little tiny bit.
0: Well, Karen and Elizabeth. So they're a lot more interesting with their parole hearings, for sure. Why? Karen went to prison in 1986 and gave interviews then for a little while, like the first five or six years, like into the early 90s, but then stopped giving interviews for about 20 years. This is according to Lex 18. In 2011, she's denied parole. 2016, she's denied parole. She says, quote, she was sorry she didn't lay down her life for Turpin and that she's a changed woman. Her side of the story, it's like, um, it's this kind of like LEX 18 special report, like where they do like a full five minute segment on this. It's called Her Side of the Story. And she had said, quote, be careful who your friends are is the best advice you can listen to, like completely blaming Elizabeth in 2021. So just recently, in fact, before we had even started the Turpin case and on this season for the podcast, they were up for what was most likely going to be their final parole. And it was her final time for parole for Karen's. And she received a serve out, Mm. meaning she's going to serve out her sentence. She's not going to be released from prison in her lifetime before that it was very interesting because keep in mind Karen did not take the stand she did a few interviews afterwards most likely trying you know get her story out there redeem herself like let the public know what's going on and then she was just completely silent and then all of a sudden right before this final kind of parole push she grants an interview to LEX 18s Nancy Cox hmm. here's some snippets from Karen during that interview which you can ease like I found all of this via YouTube I'm gonna be straight up like this is yeah. yeah what she say quote the system has matured me and taught me so much I'm ready to learn to ask for help ask for forgiveness and stay on a better path If I'm granted the mercy of parole, I promise you that my life will be spent continuing to pay for this crime. I will not lie to you. I had a crush on her. I adored the attention. She was also saying, so that's end
1: quote. That's great stuff right there. hate to say. Yeah,
0: she was saying she believed Elizabeth's story about being in an abusive relationship. And said, quote, I wanted to be there for someone in a real way. I did not know what was happening that night until we got to the parking lot. But this was her plan from day one. I did not put a knife to Michael Turpin. I never wanted him dead. I had no
1: reason to. Mm.
0: So she's sticking with this, which is really everything she should have said on the stand.
1: Has there ever been like a public movement, even if it's small in her favor? Definitely. People that are like free care. Yes,
0: absolutely. And we're going to get more into that towards the end of this episode Mm, because she for sure has a lot of support. And in fact, at her final parole hearing there, the head of the parole board Mm. or whoever had said, you know, you have an outpouring of support from the community. You have a lot of letters attesting to your character, a lot of family and friends stepping up and, the parole board had said something to the extent of that's all well and good, but we're having to weigh what you did with who you say you are now. She says she hopes one day Mike's family could forgive her. And she believes that she already has Mike's forgiveness because she writes to him. Karen writes to him about the things that he missed out on in life and quote, thanked him for saving mine.
1: Karen thinks that Mike would have forgiven her is what she's saying. Correct. Hmm.
0: Correct. Which is which is bold. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's bold. It's really bold to say that on TV. Um, like this is a on air interview with Nancy Cox of Lex eighteen. Gosh, twenty
1: years have gone by. More.
0: That's- of course, Lex eighteen also interviewed Don Turpin, who uh, is Mike's dad, and who has been pretty vocal. The past few years, like anytime he's asked to an interview, I've noticed that he's always been willing to like speak up. Don Turpin during this LEX 18 special said, quote, God may have forgiven her, but it won't come from me. It's an ongoing nightmare. My goal is to outlive her.
1: Jesus. And, he,
0: and then he kind of made a little joke and was like, luckily I'm in good health. So that's good. <laughs> I got you a know. chance. Yeah. He He followed that up with something that is really sad and haunting, which is... You think that life and time is going to ease the pain. You may, you know, weeks later, years later, at least maybe it's easel, it's not as fresh. He says it's just as raw today as it was then. And that it's basically just a farce that time kind of eases all of that. Oh, God. And I just, I can't get it out of my head. How.
1: <laughs> Wish I hadn't heard that. <laughs> yeah.
0: How completely tragic that is that pain doesn't get eased with time, even though. She's sad.
1: There's too many times to think about your son. I'm sure. Yeah, doesn't help when you know parole hearings happen every ten ten years either.
0: Absolutely. So Elizabeth, right? Elizabeth. What yeah. Happened yeah. To yeah. Her? So also up for uh, for parole three times, denied each time. Also got a serve out in 2021. So just like Karen. They basically got the same sentencing, the same punishment, the same amount of paroles, the same denials, and the same serve outs, which is really interesting. I want to talk for a second about Rena Vassini, the author of Fatal Seduction, because this season where we've talked about the Michael Turpin homicide has heavily relied on this book called Fatal Seduction. And if you are a lover of true crime, or you are somebody who lives in Lexington, Kentucky, you really need to read this book, especially since it was a cornerstone of my information. It was really a jumping off point. But even more so, it has all these details in it that are pretty interesting that we just couldn't get to because of time's sake. But Rena Vicini, and it could be Vicini, wrote, and, and I apologize to the Vicini or Vicini family. She, just so everybody knows, she actually wrote this book in 1994, eight years after the murder. And then she wrote this epilogue that I'm about to read you a few excerpts from in 2013. So, 27 years after the murder. Okay. Wait, okay. So, And just so you know a little bit about the author, Rena Vecini died in 2015 at the age of 61. She was actually the former athletics director for media relations at UK, at the University of Kentucky. She died in her home in Arizona. According to her obituary, quote, her career as a journalist began as a reporter for the Harlan Daily Enterprise and then as a sports writer at both the Louisville Courier Journal and the Lexington Herald-Leader, where she also became a columnist. And she joined UK staff in 1980 as assistant sports information director. In 1993, they promoted her to be head of media for the athletics department. So she was just sort of like, I'm going to write this book on the side as I'm head sports athletic director or assistant to the head athletic director of uk what a badass yeah isn't that wild and that's <laughs> yeah, so cool That's so cool she retired from 2004 and when she retired she was associate athletic director for publications an interesting fact about her she was the sixth of 12 kids Jesus. which is pretty amazing and it goes without saying if you're interested in this case at all obviously you need to read fatal seduction I will also say this, as just a very amateur investigative journalist myself, I read the entire 1,500-page case file of the Turpin homicide, which I got from the Lexington Public Records, and can say with no reservations that the book Fatal Seduction is very, very accurate. Hmm. So everything she says in the book, I really tried to look up and not catch her in anything, but kind of like ensure that it's accurate and perhaps add to my own perspective of that. It's
1: instinct to do that.
0: Absolutely. And everything is. Tip tip top. Yes. From the sequence of events to you know, the details of interrogations. And then of course, Rena Vecini actually interviewed all three suspects themselves in prison, which she writes about in the epilogue of her book. So she actually wrote this epilogue two years before she passed away. So it's included only in the newer version of the book, but I have to let you hear this. She says, quote, I was pleasantly surprised by the generosity of prison officials. I visited with each of them approximately 50 times and recorded all interviews. Interestingly enough, it was Liz herself who gave me probably 99% of the scandalous stories I recounted about her in the book. She goes on and on to say that it was almost weird to her how her and Elizabeth really connected. Hmm. They're both Catholic schoolgirls, they had the same similar interest in music and same kind of sense of humor. She was charming, she was like very gregarious and fun to be around, like it was almost like she, without saying it, Rena Vecini was like, I get it. I get how she was able to like manipulate. I liked her. I liked her. Yeah. And like probably felt kind of weird about that. Yeah. And so then she says, quote, David Franklin, who was the lawyer for Karen told a Lexington media personality that he was astonished by the book's accuracy. And for that, I give Elizabeth a lot of credit. In fact, I believe she was mostly honest with me up to the point of denying any involvement with Michael's murder. On that point, she simply said, quote, I just thought they were going to go over there and rough him up. I'm going to continue on with her words. Quote, Karen was a different story. When I decided to write this book, I thought she would be the protagonist. From what I could glean from media reports, I considered the strong possibility that Karen was completely manipulated by Liz and duped into participating in a crime that was out of character for her. I speculated that she had refused to take the witness stand because she did not want to give up the woman she loved. I had hoped that when I went to visit her, that because she was in prison for her life, she would now tell the real story and possibly even vindicate herself. But all I got from her was implausible denials. So keep in mind that Karen's attorney, whose last name was Rather, told everybody that he decided not to put Karen on the witness stand because she wasn't like articulate or well spoken, even though she's incredibly smart and bright, but that her lifestyle of like being gay and drugs and drag would turn the jury against her. And at the time, a lot of people really thought that the attorney probably saved her life in doing so because prosecutors had sought the death penalty for both women but it didn't take long into the interview process for rena vasini to quote develop another theory the lawyer didn't want his client to lie under oath so he karen's lawyer didn't want have to put karen on the stand so she would have to lie under oath. For the most part, Karen controlled our interviews. She enjoyed giggling and talking mostly about herself. She showed me pictures of herself as a child. All of her different accolades with sports, music, and academics. After about a year of these visits, I decided I wasn't going to get much from her. She simply denied any role in Michael's death. And I knew I was just wasting my time, is what Rena Vecini said. So then, this is kind of the juicy part.
1: This is immediately after their sentence, correct?
0: Yeah, like, no, she wrote, so it has to be, because it takes about, what would you say, about a year or two to write a book?
1: Maybe two or three years? Like but you would said that Karen has come out since then, being like, I sure wish I hadn't gone to that house, and blah, yeah. blah, 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 you know yes. what I mean? Yes, Implying she's guilty.
0: Um, no, I think she's sticking tight these past few years to, I went to the house.
1: I thought that was already, like, done and stone, like, Keith killed him, but you were there, and you helped right, move right. the body, so blah, it's blah, 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 So it's
0: really what it comes down to Has Karen. she
1: admitted to that? You know what I'm saying? What? Like... like she openly, without, you know, obfuscating getting the truth like she did here, like what you're saying, has said in recent years, yeah, I was there. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah. No, Keith no, no. killed no. him. And, you know, no, she's never sucks. denied I that. I wish I hadn't been there. She's
0: you know? never denied that she well, was there. Okay. Not even from the very early days of the the trial and stuff. I mean, her confession a week after it happened to police was that, yeah, I was there, but I was somewhat, not coerced, but... At one point, she says, I thought we were just going to go over there to rough him up. Another point, she's like, I thought I was doing this for my friend who was being abused. Another point, she thinks that Keith's just going to go over there and like ask, say that they're going to need a divorce. And then and then it turns into could be all those together. Could be. It was never, ever, though. We went over there to kill him. Gotcha. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah. So then Rena Vecini who has a ton of paperwork, right a ton of evidence all these people are giving like court documents, case briefings and somebody along the lines gives her a giant black trash bag full of letters hmm. And she does she never outs this person because she says something about I will not reveal how I came upon these letters because I don't think the person who loaded them into my car knew what was in the bag. Hmm. But what's in the car, She had just assumed it was a bunch of like fan mail because Elizabeth and Karen got, or especially Elizabeth, got a bunch of fan mail from other people. When really she goes through it at some point on this road trip with her friend, her friend just starts pulling out letters and starts reading them. And it's letters from Elizabeth to Karen and Karen to Elizabeth. In jail. In jail. Mm. Correct. Quote, The first selection was from Karen to Elizabeth and had been written while the two women were in the Fayette County Detention Center awaiting trial. It was a love letter and alluded to running away to L.A. when they were exonerated, just like they had planned all along. Gotcha. As my friend continued to read letter after letter, I had to pull off the road to see for myself. There were letters from Karen to family members to her legal representatives and to Liz all contradicting what she had been saying to me. Before we were halfway to our destination, I had Karen's own words spelling out the planning, the murder itself, and the cover-up. But mostly they were love letters, from Elizabeth to Karen and from Karen to Elizabeth. So that's according to Rena Rina That is It's really big, yeah. right? Yeah. And obviously it had to have sucked to... Find that after you have published this whole yeah, book on it. Real. So that's mm-hmm. why she's big about writing this epilogue. Um, she goes on to say the intent of Elizabeth's letters was crystal clear and proved that Karen was as blind as Michael when it came to Liz's power of seduction and manipulation. Mm-hmm. So Rena Vecini goes back to the penitentiary uh-huh. and with the letters and is like, so this pretty much spells out that you, this was premeditated and you both had planned it all along. So she goes to Elizabeth first. Obviously, she says, knowing this would be the last time I would see them. No. Elizabeth continued, quote, Elizabeth continued to be honest for the most part. She admitted she led Karen on and that they messed around a little bit to keep Karen believing she would get what she wanted eventually. But she said it was cocaine, nightlife and getting out of her boring apartment that motivated her to do this. The two women were not lovers. They were together one time only shortly before the trial ended when a jail matron allowed the two to be alone in a cell together. I believe that was Liz's way, Elizabeth's way of guaranteeing Karen would not betray her on the witness stand. So then she goes on to mention that she believes that Elizabeth Zender is not gay at all. Not that it matters whatsoever, but she married from prison, a man named Robert Philip Reichel or Rachel on October 30th, of 1998. Hmm. So what would that be? 10 years later ish. No. So 12, 12 Hmm. years later after she's in jail. Yeah. So this guy marries her. I never got anything close to resembling the truth from Karen. She says, quote, I just don't understand how you didn't know that Keith was going to kill Mike. Outrightly says that to Karen. Karen says we were just supposed to talk to him. But why didn't you run when Keith started stabbing him? Do you think I could outrun knives? She would answer. Well, what about the next day? Why didn't you call the police? Because Keith would find me and kill me. And on and on it went. Like she wouldn't admit to anything. Rina Vecini also says that she met with Keith Bouchard only one time at the men's penitentiary. Um, he had a small Bible in his shirt pocket and could not say much except for how sorry he was and how he knew that his only salvation could come from the Lord himself. She said she wants to <sighs> note that his sincerity and remorse were very convincing to me. So it's interesting, right? The whole epilogue
1: is pretty wild. Well, it's exactly what we thought, more or less. Yeah, more or less. More or less. Elizabeth is the worst. <laughs> Without her, it wouldn't have happened. Karen was duped, but she's not a fool and she's still very culpable for what she did. And Keith was the lackey yeah, who was easily swayed. He could have met somebody else right before Elizabeth and been a priest, obviously. Or is it Keith is culpable for everything. And even if you call for someone's death and you don't do it, then maybe you shouldn't be in prison the rest of your entire life.
0: I remember you and I having a conversation a really long time ago. Like, you were probably late teens, which would have made me early 20s. What was it about? It was about, like, Charles Manson. Mm. And I think we even talked to Fran Root about this. We were like, how, truly, how culpable is someone like Manson? Who never
1: killed anybody. Who who just
0: had influence, but didn't actually go through. And back then, in our younger years, I would have probably argued, like a dumbass, like he doesn't deserve anything. You're only really guilty if you're the one wielding a knife. But really no like there's leaders and there's followers in this world and it took a leader and a follower to do the Manson murders. It certainly took a leader and a couple of followers for the Michael Turpin murder. So in in every single part had like everybody played a role and at the end of the day those roles were equal. In my older years, that is my opinion now, is that if you played a part in it and it came to fruition. You are responsible for that.
1: Well, where do you draw the line? Not to make it a debate. No, no, no. I'm, where I'm, do you draw I'm willing line?
0: to debate with you. What What do you mean draw the line?
1: Like, what if some kids like, I hate my parents to his friend. I just wish they'd die. You know, emotional out, outburst or something like that. And then the, oh, like the kid goes and kills them. Like, it was very like, what if that was Elizabeth's thing? There's you can't 100% prove that she's a lunatic. Like, maybe she's not all that. Like, maybe her manipulations are heavy handed more than we think. And like, she's not as good as she is. And she really was in the moment just saying, I hate my husband. Wish well, she was dead. And then Keith and Karen coked up, go out there and do it. Mm-hmm. That's not completely far-fetched because she didn't kill it. Everyone says that's involved in the crime that Elizabeth did not kill him different room.
0: Yeah. Different side of Lexington.
1: I mean, I think she's where she belongs, but that should be considered. I don't know.
0: No, I hear you. It's,
1: it's interesting. Is it? It, it, you know, it's, Every time the parole comes up, um, she was not actually the one that killed him. And everyone's like, no, you're the devil still.
0: So this is what she said in one of her parole hearings, actually, which was I had said that, but I had no idea that they would take it that far. And so when they came back to the apartment and I like woke up out of a intoxicated state... And, and she was like as shocked as anybody.
1: See, what if she had taken a different approach? What if she was just super sobby and weepy eyed during the whole process?
0: Oh. I don't know what happened. And, like, If she'd immediately gone to police, you like know what I'm saying? drove from, didn't even go home, but like drove from Karen's apartment to, I bet that would have held a lot of clout. And
1: made it have to be like these two crazy cokeheads that I'm ca- casually friends right. with. were Right.
0: Like, but the fact that she didn't. That's the
1: better yarn. The fact that she her. didn't
0: really hold a lot of
1: yeah, she, steam with all that. If she's so smart, why are you acting real cold? Mm-hmm. I thought you were like this master manipulator, puppet master behind the scenes. You can't act remorseful or not, you know, like scared and frightened. But don't like forget... That's to... what an innocent person acts like. And you would have gotten away with it or you would have swayed the jury more. So you've swayed everybody else. But instead, you acted real cold and like you were a part of it. Yeah. Makes no sense. Master manipulator, please.
0: But keep in mind too about the conversation that the Anthony guy he was a witness on the witness stand during trial had said that he overheard uh, Elizabeth and Karen saying in the back seat of a car like really discussing intently the insurance policy discussing we should just bump him off um i know that i could do it only if you ask me to like all of this like So is that just talk and you're just kind of like, oh, I'm just so glad that somebody likes me enough to want to kill my husband. It's a real
1: nasty thing to say and do, but is it a crime to talk about violent thoughts to other people? Maybe it should be. I don't know, but it's not currently a crime. Yeah, it's a good point. Talking about offing your husband for the insurance money is not a crime.
0: It is if someone goes off and does it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) They deserve to be where they are, but it's interesting to... To talk about it truly is it
0: is. And it's interesting to because all three of them played such a radically different role. Yeah. And yet all three got the same. There's different judgment. levels of
1: culpability. Yes. You know what I mean? Like
0: that's what's always fascinating to me about this case. And quite frankly, why I kind of thought that I don't know. I thought I would read Rena Vicini's book. I thought I would get the entire case docket, like all everything about it, and I would like figure it out more somehow. And really, (laughs) at the end of the season, I'm left even more kind of confused than I was to begin. It's like you get to know all of these players in their own way. And I'm not at all at a better conclusion than I was when I started. Really?
1: Yeah, not really. Was it, is that because it was just laid out so um, plainly, like both in the book and in the case file? It was a well told story. You aren't, you aren't wondering about a ton of things. It's spelled out for you. Yeah. It's, it's so dramatic. Like We get to know all the thoughts of each person. It's wild. You know? It
0: is. It is. Especially for 1986. We don't know
1: jack squat about what Drew freaking Thornton was thinking about half right. the time. You know what I mean?
0: Right. Seems right.
1: Like we know every motivation for every little thing for every character in this Which
0: one, is wild you know? because this was all... Keep in mind, Drew Thornton's plane went down in September of 1986. Right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Which was during the trial of Michael Turpin. No. no yes. kidding. That's awesome. Yes. Huh. Isn't that wild? That's wild. I just now put that together. You're just
1: obsessed with the 80s. You're
0: I guess. obsessed with the 80s? Or 86. Yeah. It's probably because I was born in 85. And 80- I'm like,
1: oh. Mid, late 80s is where some real conspiratorial crap went down in Lexington, Kentucky. Yeah, for sure. No doubt. Multiple arenas
0: yeah well even fran root was like they we had to have a new change of guard after that remember <laughs> yeah uh-huh. he was like it was a like what a time to be alive and also yikes yeah
1: watch your ass yeah
0: and there was a lot of like I, i'll never forget when fran root was like you know you have these people coming back from the korean war and they just oh, oh cool you've used a gun before F- feel free to go out like no here's training a badge. here's
1: a badge you're a narcotics officer now
0: Okay, so what I wanted to mention was, I'm glad that you had said, but what about Elizabeth and all this? Because a lot of her involvement could be considered hearsay. It's a he said, she said situation, and everyone seems to be against her, and she's the only one speaking out for herself. Okay, so keep that in mind as Fair I enough. tell you this. Okay. In Shelby County, which is where the Kentucky Correctional Institute for Women is, this I'm going to read to you a... Court of Appeals court document, okay? Quote, in November of 2017, Captain Rebecca Denham concluded an investigation into an alleged incident that occurred in May of 2017 at the Kentucky Correctional Institute for Women. The investigation revealed that Elizabeth Turpin arranged for her present husband to deposit funds into the account of a Sierra Rucker another inmate at KCIW for the purpose of paying Rucker to assault two other inmates. As part of the investigation, Captain Denham confidentially interviewed between three and 10 inmates who gave consistent statements regarding the incident. Turpin was charged under Kentucky Corrections policies and procedures, the offense of physical action against another inmate if three or more inmates are involved. So it was cons- it was a charge that was considered um, or categorized as a major violation. Yeah, she
1: sounds reformed, huh? <laughs> this is, parole's looking good this is for
0: her. was huh? 2017. It was oh, five years ago. So like a, dumb, and it was right before she would have been up for her final chance for man, parole. Idiot. Turpin unconvinced So this is quote Turpin unconvincingly argues the statements. So so at her hearing for this, because even as a as an inmate, you get like charged, and there's hearings and stuff. Hmm. And you can hire a lawyer, I guess, but they had made a big deal in this court document that she wanted to represent herself. So she, Turpin unconvincingly argues the statements were unreliable, but she did not offer any witnesses or evidence to refute the statements made by various inmates. Under palpable error review, we discern no manifest injustice. Like, they don't don't believe
1: her. Hmm. Yeah. You're in there for killing someone through proxy (laughs) and then you know a few years before your parole you try to kill by proxy again you
0: use i want to know the details behind it like were they after you yeah you felt like you were
1: i'm sure that's what she said right she's threatened again
0: it's all hearsay like we'll never know we'll never truly know the extent of her manipulation
1: this is a terrible thing to say but say it (laughs) And I apologize to anyone listening that might take offense, but I wonder what the family of Michael Turpin feels about how her name is Turpin. Yeah, for real. If only she would just just, if I was him, I'd be like, you're taking your other name again. You're not a Turpin turd. Yeah. You know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every time in the paper, Turpin, Turpin, Elizabeth Turpin, 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 right. Turpin. It's like, oh, I would piss me off yeah, if I was in the Turpin I, family. You know
0: what? It kind of pisses me off reading it sometimes, too. I've thought about it myself. They were they were married less than a year? I know. Less than a year. Yeah. and And now she's remarried. To this other guy, this Rachel or Reichel guy. So is that her legal name now? No, it still says Turpin. Huh. And even in this court document. And keep in mind, she's been married to this other guy since 1996, and this happened in 2017. Over 20 years, she's been married to this other guy, but she still has the last name Turpin. Well,
1: what gives? Is, is that a media thing, or is that her intentionally being like, no, I'm, an, I'm keeping the name Turpin? Who knows? Who knows? I would I'm, I would be fascinated to find out that answer. Seriously. Did she choose to do that? Does this
0: change your opinion of her involvement in the in Michael Turpin's murder? The fact that
1: she did this in prison or no? Um absolutely no no, I already thought she was guilty. Okay. Yeah. So adding fuel to the fire, baby? Yeah. She's guilty extra.
0: Okay. I want to talk about being I want to talk about the parole process and I want to talk about being in prison in Kentucky and what were what we're trying to accomplish with that. There was a really fascinating article Um, In March of last year, March 5th of 2021, and it was written by this woman. So uh, this is an article in the Herald-Leader, and it's in like the opinions columns, by Gay Holman. And Gay D. Holman is a retired sociology professor and author of Decades Behind Bars, A 20-Year Conversation with Men in Americans' Prisons. So she's a prison educational programmer, ta- and she really helps ex offenders re enter society and stuff. So she wrote this, and it was published in the Herald Leader March 5th, 2021. It's titled Karen Brown Case We Need to Rethink Prison and Parole System. Quote Why do we lock people up in Kentucky? Do we want the offenders punished, rehabilitated, or are they used as lessons to others? We need to decide. Our justice system should be built around our conclusions. The recent decision about Karen Brown, an accessory in the highly publicized Turpin murder case from 1986, is a textbook example of what is wrong with our system. Seeing the parole board for the third time, Karen was given a serve out on a life sentence, which means that she will never be released from prison and can never again be considered for parole. We will be paying for her prison care the rest of her life. Karen has been incarcerated for 34 years. She worked for me years ago as my clerk in the college program at Kentucky Correctional Institute for Women. As years passed, Karen labored long over her education, working her way through correspondence courses to a graduate degree in Christian counseling. She purposefully found meaningful prison jobs over the years that made a difference. She built an excellent institutional record. Her Christian commitment is deep. She approached the parole board with a packet thick with her accomplishments and stacks of letters attesting to her rehabilitation that supported her release. She had offers for meaningful employment, a reentry group to help her. As allowed, the victim's family, still suffering deeply after 34 years, met personally with the parole board and begged them to never release Karen. They contacted the newspaper and TV stations who publicized the case, but who made no attempt to interview Karen or her supporters. The parole board member interviewing Karen at the hearing commented on her accomplishments and unusual amount of support, but said the hurt she caused outweighed her accomplishments. In other words, in the mind of the parole board, the purpose of incarceration was punishment, not rehabilitation. And there is the rub. The parole board is mandated to consider objective issues of rehabilitation and the safety of society in making their decision. Their only consideration with Karen was seriousness of the crime, a condition that can never be changed. As a sociologist, I conducted a study of 50 inmates over a 20-year period. In that group were a large number of men who had taken multiple lives. Since then, many have been released, demonstrating their changed lives. They are in our communities, doing well, working, owning homes, paying taxes. The ones remaining in prison today, after decades of confinement, are those who have victims actively arguing against their release. I do not want to negate the pain of the victims, but neither do I want to pay for their lingering anger. If Karen lives another 30 years... We will have paid the equivalent of nearly $2 million in today's money to keep her locked up. Kentucky citizens are paying these extraordinary bills without fully understanding the complex issues of parole that involve politics, power, and fear. The governor needs to appoint a group of administrators, citizens, politicians, and ex-offenders. The discussion should be wide-ranging and public. It is too late for Karen Brown but we must take a new look at Kentucky's parole and prison practices through legal, moral, and monetary lenses. It affects us all. Whew.
1: God, that was good. Yeah,
0: it's well written, right? So good.
1: Mm-mm-mm. Yeah,
0: it's a really interesting point. I remember uh, so it was actually mom who found the article and was like, "Oh, it's about your your po- it's about your podcast case." <laughs> and like kept it. I immediately read it and was like, "Damn. Like, it really makes you think about what are we doing with prisons? What's the goal? What's the goal? What What did you think?
1: I think it's fascinating that the main reason why people stay in prison, like they get shot down in their uh, parole hearings, is because the family's there to say like, no, 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 you know? Our, this, this still hurts. Yeah, it still hurts. And the justice will be undone if you let them go kind of thing. And that matters. But how much stock should we place in that? How much? I think throughout the last at least 30 or 40 years, we've always said victim family rights come before anything. Have we? I think we always have. Like, think of, the, think of the family. Yeah. And that kind of trumps you, you know, emotionally, morally even. You know, it's not up to you. It's up to the family is what we always kind of say. But maybe that's malarkey. When you put it like that in that article, you know, think of the cost. And is it truly right? Like, there's other people out there that have killed multiple people and they're out helping yeah, society that, in certain ways.
0: That doesn't seem fair.
1: That doesn't seem like possible. you've killed. At least in K- Kentucky.
0: It just because really what we're saying is like, well, it really depends on your victim. Were they uh, from a nice family that was really well liked and has influence in the community? Vocal, or yeah. were they like kind of think about Jack the Ripper? Jack the Ripper would targeted a lot like uh, the Green River Killer, targeted these prostitutes or on the outskirts of the community, like people who didn't have families that wouldn't be thought of. Wouldn't be missed. And wouldn't be, and, and they weren't. And that was their M.O., and that's how they got away with it for so long. And that's, I mean, if you're a runaway, you're obviously an easy target, but doesn't your life matter as much as
1: somebody who still grieves your loss, like a Michael Turpin? Absolutely. I like the favorite part of that article was there should be a committee combined of a whole bunch of different sources. Yeah,
0: who's on a parole not committee? Not just a
1: judge, you know, like
0: No, but it's not a judge. Who who's on a parole pa- committee? Parole board. I mean, I mean that's what I mean. Who's on a parole board?
1: I think they're appointed by the uh by by the state, the, you know, the uh, DOJ. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if they're voted or not. I think it's just as far as you Shouldn't they be? They probably should, honestly, if they're not already, but I don't think we there's no voting for Uh, At least in outside sources, there's no voting for a parole board member.
0: I think a lot of people believe, though, that a person who commits murder should not be free no matter how many years they've served in prison because prisons their punishment for taking a life, a life that's gone forever. And so some people believe that the convicted wanting freedom to start a new life is selfish because you don't get a new life if you choose to have taken one. Also, of course, ensuring that society that you're not gonna do it again. Though I I don't think Karen Brown would, if she was released, would go and kill someone. I just don't see it.
1: Isn't that what we should be judging?
0: No, because it's partly punishment too. Otherwise eye for
1: an eye, tooth for a tooth. Uh, maybe a little draconian bit draconian law, you know. Haven't we come further than that? Like there's gotta be nuances that we as as people of the twenty first century understand.
0: Yeah. I don't know. It's too, it's here, here's, here's at the end of the day, it's too big of a decision for puny brains like you and I. True talk. We don't know. There is no right answer. There is. I don't. There really isn't. There, there probably is. And it's a giant balance of everything that we've said.
1: What's good for society, right? Doesn't that matter to most people? Letting her go probably is. If we can be fairly certain that she's not going to kill again and, and help society with taxes and being a part of the community in a positive way. Most people would say, let her go. If, if you were you certain, so? how about this? If you were certain she would never kill again, certain, like your God looking down, she'll never kill again. Would you let her go? Or do you keep her in there for the punishment aspect, which is the correct choice? What's more ethical? Regardless of anything, it's a incredibly interesting, amazing case and a piece of Lexington.
0: For sure. And as always, I think we've ended a few episodes this way, but I certainly want to end this season- and this moment with Michael Turpin was a gem of a human being. I was able to get my hands on his yearbooks from when he was in middle school and high school. And he was just like the sweetest looking kid. <laughs> and the and I mean this in the sweetest, kindest way possible. Like the cutest little band nerd oh. you've ever seen in your life. And every single person, including the three... Perpetrators themselves have never said anything bad about. He was just such a great guy.
1: Proof is in the pudding. Yeah, yeah. You had me a band nerd.
0: I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's who you marry. You marry a band. I've never
1: met a band nerd I didn't like. Same period. Same. They just they just come super nice.
0: Our hearts go out to the Turpin family, and if by some weird chance you ever hear our silly little podcasts, just know that we love you. We're with you. I hope that we did justice to Michael Turpin's case and his memory. And the fact that he was a really, really amazing person.
1: You did, sis. Love you, sis. Love
0: you, brother. All right, next week. Join us next week for our season two finale. I'm super excited about next week's episode because we're going to discuss all the things that we have planned for season three of the Lexington podcast. We're going to talk about our goals and our plans and how you can actually be a part of our content. We're getting crazy organized, y'all. Super exciting. We will officially announce the new Lexington true crime case for season three. And this is one that you most likely have not heard of. It's a bit more off the beaten path and it's not as widely publicized as the other two that we've covered. We'll also give you a rundown of all the different segments that we have planned for next season as well. Of course, we'll keep our classics like Out and About, where we give you local recommendations of places that we love, and Lex History, where we chat the always fascinating history of Lexington. But we'll have some new stuff heading your way too, including some movie reviews Johnny fought hard for, upcoming interviews, and a website in the works. All this and so, so much more next week on the Lexington Podcast. See you then. The Lexington Podcast is produced by Erica Fries and Jonathan O'Hare in association with Freeze Media. Original music by Jonathan O'Hare. Credit and special thanks to all our sources this week, including Rena Vecini, author of Fatal Seduction, Lex 18, Fayette County Court Records, Gail D. Holman, and the Lexington Herald-Leader. As always, feel free to email us anytime at lexingtonpodcast at gmail.com or catch us on Instagram. We are Lexington Podcast on Instagram as well and we always answer your messages there too, especially if you have a great idea for a story or a segment. If you'd like to leave us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on, we'd be so grateful. Kind reviews seriously mean the world to us and mean that we're able to grow and reach a larger audience. Have a great week and thanks so much for joining us.